Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. We love you. We trust you. Thank you for the gift of this day. How can we serve you? We come before you tonight ready and uh, willing to seek you, to learn more about you, to grow in relationship with you. And so we pray, Lord, as we dive into your word, that it would speak to us that these words would resonate with us, challenge us, comfort us, provide the answers to the questions we have, guidance in the ways we are questioning or confused, and help us, Lord, in our discernment and our constant daily walk with you in trying to live a moral and upright life as disciples. We ask, Lord, that this time be laid at your feet, that you would bless us each in the ways that we most need it, and remove from each one of us anything drawing our attention away from this place tonight. Any unfocus, darkness, anxiety, worry, doubt, fear, and that you would just rebuke those things in your name, by your power, power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let the peace of your Holy Spirit reign in this place and each, in each one of our hearts tonight. Speak to us, Lord. We are listening. We pray all of this in your most precious name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we are in Matthew chapter 21, once again, verses 33 through 43. This is the gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, which is the 27th Sunday in Ordinary Time. We're picking up right where we left off from last week. We had the parable of the two sons, the first of three judgment parables that Jesus is proclaiming to the Pharisees, the scribes, and elders in Jerusalem. This is number two. Uh, and so, this is the same setting. Jesus is uh, in Jerusalem now. He's confronted the uh, authorities, the powers that be, by flipping over the tables in the temple area, cursing the fig tree, uh, allowing his authority to go unquestioned, and challenging the authority now of the Pharisees and the elders. Uh, and so, he demonstrated that maybe a little bit subtly in last week's parable, and it's going to get even more direct now in this week's parable. So first time through, that's the setting. Jesus is with his disciples and his followers in Jerusalem, confronting the leadership there. And we are reading the parable of the tenants, Matthew 21, verses 33 through 43. First time through, just get a picture for what Jesus is saying here. Here, another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard put a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. Then he leased it to tenants and went on a journey. When vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to obtain his produce. But the tenants seized the servants, and one they beat, another they killed, and a third they stoned. Again, he sent other servants, more numerous than the first ones, but they treated them in the same way. 
Finally, he sent his son to them, thinking, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and acquire his inheritance. They seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. What will the owner of the vineyard do to those tenants when he comes? They answered him, He will put those wretched men to a wretched death and lease his vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the proper times. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. By the Lord has this been done, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that will produce its fruit. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to read this a second time, as we always do. Listen this time. If there's any particular word, phrase, or detail that resonates with you for any particular reason, think of this as a personal reflection on the words of the passage. Again, this is not to theologically interpret uh, or to find some really academic way of you know, getting something out of this passage. This is how does this strike you? How does this speak to you personally? Pay attention to those things, as well as any questions that are raised as we read this one final time. Matthew 21, 33. Hear another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. Then he leased it to tenants and went on a journey. When the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to obtain his produce. But the tenants seized the servants and one they beat, another they killed, and a third they stoned. Again, he sent other servants more numerous than the first ones, but they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them, thinking, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and acquire his inheritance. They seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. What will the owner of the vineyard do to those tenants when he comes? They answered him, He will put those wretched men to a wretched death and lease his vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the proper times. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. By the Lord has this been done, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that will produce its fruit. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. 
So I invite you to look back over this passage, the things that stood out to you. If you're watching this or listening to it later, let us know what stood out to you. But for those of us here, we'll take about the next 10 minutes to discuss at your tables what resonated with you, what, what did you reflect on, why did it mean something to you, and any questions that you have about this passage. And then I'll call us all back to the larger group and we'll discuss and answer those questions. So take about the next 10 minutes. So um, to put this parable into a little bit of a perspective, Jesus here, he's kind of, what he's doing, he's recounting a little bit of the history of Israel. And he's using this parable and symbolism to do so, to try and paint a picture for the Pharisees and the leadership uh, to accuse them of basically making the same mistakes that the nation of Israel has been making generation after generation. And so we see this very clearly when you go to Mass on Sunday, You'll hear this in the readings, because the first reading is from Isaiah chapter 5, and it's called the Song of the Vineyard. And it's a prophecy from the prophet Isaiah about the fact that God has planted this vineyard, which is Israel, and it's meant to be this thing that brings about joy, brings about song. Like in Psalm, this is a great uh, Bible verse to put in your kitchen somewhere, Psalm 104 verse 15 um, says something to the effect of, um, God created wine to gladden the heart. Um, and so if you're a wine lover, there's a, a Bible verse for you to memorize. But like that's what this, this song of the vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5 is meant to evoke. It's meant to evoke this kind of joy. But what happens is that the vineyard yields rotten, sour grapes. It doesn't yield the fruit that it was supposed to yield. And it's a proclamation condemning the leadership and the nation of Israel at that time for not following or being faithful to the covenant that they've made with God. And because of that, they're going to learn that disobedience leads to destruction. That's what the whole, uh, whole Old Testament is trying to remind us time and time again that obedience leads to abundance, but disobedience leads to destruction. Okay? Or you could put it this way, uh, goodness leads to gladness, sin leads to sadness. And so we see that over and over and over again as a theme. You know, people will do messed up things in the Bible. And you'll read it and you'll be like, why doesn't anyone say anything about this? Like, this is really messed up. But if you follow the trajectory of their life throughout the next pages of Scripture, you'll see the consequences play out. So the Bible doesn't need to directly show you that, or tell you that something is wrong. It will show you the consequences of a person or a nation's actions. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. He's recounting the consequences of actions of Israel, the chosen people of God, throughout history accusing this particular group of Pharisees of the same thing. And then Matthew is writing at a time where it's after all of this has happened, and he's using this to function as a warning to the new leadership of the church. So this cannot become a pretext for anti-Semitism, not in the least bit, because this is just as much a warning for us as it was at the time Jesus delivered it and at the time that Matthew wrote it. Okay, but this is what Jesus is doing. He's establishing this pattern of behavior. So we have a landowner, that is God, and he plants a vineyard. Okay, and if you want to know what the vineyard is, you'll listen to the psalm this Sunday from Psalm 80. The responsorial psalm is, the vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel. Ding, 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 tells you plainly right there. So you already know going into the gospel what the vineyard is. It's the house of Israel. And then it says he put a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. Okay, so a hedge around it signifies walls. Okay, at, at this time, it, at this time in history, uh, an ancient city was not considered a city unless it had walls. It was just like a, a, an architectural fact. And so, if it didn't have walls, it was kind of like an unincorporated territory. It wasn't considered an official city. Okay, so he's establishing within this vineyard, essentially, the symbolic city, 
with a wine press. Okay, wine press is meant to lead to joy, right? God made wine to gladden the heart. And it's meant to produce fruit, okay, to be fruitful. And then if you build a tower, a tower is something that's visible, okay? Just like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world and you should let your light shine before others. You are like a city set on a hill for others to see, to be visible. And Jerusalem itself is 2,250-ish feet above sea level. It's on a high hill. It's visible from areas all around it. That's why you would always say we're going up to Jerusalem on pilgrimage because you do actually go up in elevation pretty much from every direction. And so this is meant to signify this great nation of Israel. So planting this vineyard means he makes this covenant with his people. He enters into relationship with them. And yet this is what happens. This is how they treat what they have been entrusted. He entrusts this holy land, the promised land, to the Jewish people. They divide it up. And then he lets them be the stewards of it. He lets them, they become the tenants. Okay, so the, the Jewish leadership at the time, the kings, the, the scribes, the elders at that time, they are the tenants. They're meant to take care of the vineyard, to tend it. And then we have this kind of passage of, of God going away. Now, we know that God doesn't go away, obviously, the, the, but the presence of God does at one point leave the temple never to return, and that's during the time of exile. But we're not meant to look at this and kind of play-by-play -play interpret it as it's like some kind of secret code. Jesus is speaking symbolically here. But there's a sense that the presence of God maybe is no longer felt, and these tenants start to uh, assume more power than they were meant to have. And so God sends his servants, which are the prophets, people like Jeremiah, Zechariah. And you see the accusations throughout the Old Testament. Elijah makes this accusation, God, they have killed your prophets. I'm the only one left. He says that in 1 Kings 19. And in 2 Chronicles, there's other of these accusations. Jeremiah is put in stocks. He's thrown into a well. He is, he is treated very poorly. God, I think God even tells Jeremiah, if I'm not mistaken, you're going to go preach this to people. No one is going to listen to you. I'm just telling you up front, Jeremiah, no one is going to listen to anything that I tell you to tell them, but I need you to go tell them anyway. That's his whole life. There's no like, there's no pot of gold at the end of that rainbow. Like Jeremiah, he's called the weeping prophet because everything just sucks for Jeremiah. He never feels like he's successful, but he still is faithful to what God asked him because the tenants, the rulers, they keep treating him in this way. Okay. Zechariah, one of the prophets, is killed in the, in the temple area or in the holy area of the temple. So there's all the evidence of who this represents. And then God sends his son, Jesus. And so, of course, this isn't the interaction that happens because in, in any real scenario, no tenant would be like, let's kill the son and we'll have his inheritance. Like no legal system works that way. Like that's idiotic logic. But Jesus is telling the story to paint the picture of what is going to happen to him to show how unjust it is, to get, in, in essence, the Pharisees to condemn themselves, just like they did in last week's parable. And so he paints this picture. He's the son. They throw him out of the vineyard, just like Jesus is escorted out of the city, okay, to be killed outside of the walls of Jerusalem. This is also a practical reason. If someone were to be killed in a vineyard, the vineyard would then become unclean. You couldn't use its produce. So it was a practical thing as well for them to take out the body from the city before they killed him. But nonetheless, this is a prophecy about Jesus, him pro prophesying what's going to happen to himself. And then they, he asks, what will, what will the Lord, what will the landowner do 
to these tenants. Basically, he's asking them, what do you think God should do to you? But they don't know that's what he's asking them. And they condemn themselves. So we should be put to a wicked death, a wicked punishment for our wicked actions. It's basically what they say about themselves. And then Jesus doubles down. He quotes, it's from Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is Psalm 118, verse 22. Psalm 118 was considered a processional or pilgrimage psalm. So this is a psalm that you would read when you were on pilgrimage to Jerusalem for a particular feast day. And when you got to Jerusalem, these are psalms that were often read or sung as the king and the processional led uh, to the temple area for special high holy days and feasts. And the line that precedes this in the psalm, it says, I thank you for you have answered me. You have been my savior. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So already in the book of Psalms, there's a link between the cornerstone being the savior. The cornerstone on a building, it's kind of where the walls come together. You may have seen this in some older buildings. It's often where the date of a building's establishment is printed. It's on a big stone in some older cities. You'll see this a lot in New York or Chicago or places like that. Not so much here, but especially in city buildings or things like that. There'll be a prominent stone, usually in the corner or near the, like somewhere on the facade in a prominent area. That's the cornerstone. It's kind of the signifier that this holds the walls together. And this is when the building becomes a building. It's when this is in place, solidifying the structure uh, into an actual building. And that's what Jesus is is prophesying that he has come to do. He's bringing all of this together, this vineyard, this land, this promise that God has made. Jesus is the culmination of it. And yet, the people are going to reject him. The people are going to reject him. He is the cornerstone. And then he says, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of, of God will be taken away from you and be given to a people that will produce its fruit. So Jesus not only basically takes the the Jewish people, the Jewish leadership through a a symbolic history lesson without them knowing it, but he's also using this to serve as a warning for his current church leadership that's around him, the disciples, to be warned as to how are you going to be good tenants, good stewards of the new vineyard that God is planting in you, in the church that I've come to establish. And so when we hear that proclaimed in the readings, listen to that this Sunday in the first reading, the Song of the Vineyard from Isaiah 5. Listen to that in Psalm 80 when you hear that kind of description of the vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel. Uh, not in the second reading. The second reading has nothing to do with the theme. But, um, the, the, and then the gospel. You'll see all of this very intentionally linked together. So I think I'll... Well, do I want to stop there? No, I don't want to stop there. Sorry. I have three more things. Um, <laughs> I totally forgot about this. Okay, so there's three. When I, as I was reflecting on this, three questions came to mind. I'll go through these briefly, and then if there's questions, we, we can have uh, questions. Um, and the first question is, uh, what have you been entrusted with? What have you been entrusted with? Because we have all been entrusted with something. God has given you and I gifts, talents, relationships, a sphere of influence, Every single one of us, I wholeheartedly believe, was born into the relationships, the family, this time in salvation history for a purpose. So it's by no mistake that you are here, that you're in the relationships that you're in, the job you're in, the family you're in, the friendships that you're in. All of that is for a purpose. I was talking to someone earlier today in spiritual direction, and they were like, you know what? I really can't find community in this new city that I lived in. I was like, well, you do know that God put you there, right? So maybe you're the way that this community gets created. You have a purpose there. If we have this mentality that like everything about faith, everything about life is me, 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 I focused, then we're not being a good steward of the gifts that we've been given. So what have you been entrusted with? 
Because you are, in some way, a tenant to some vineyard that the Lord has established in your life around you. What have you been entrusted with? The second thing that this reminded me of is a question I often ask uh, myself and others is that if you were accused in a court of law of being a Catholic, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If you were accused in a court of law of being a Catholic, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And I'm not just saying like, oh yeah, there's a rosary in my house somewhere. No, but like testimony about your life and the actions. I was thinking of the famous line from Jerry Maguire where Cuba Gooding Jr. says, show me the money, right? I think at the end of our life, when we get to Jesus in our judgment, he's going to say, show me the fruit. Where was the fruit? Where was the evidence that you actually followed me, that you actually believed. Not just empty words, not just because you were in the same geographical place as spiritual things were happening, not just because you were around a lot of holy people. What made you a follower of Jesus? Okay, so what have you been entrusted with? Are you bearing fruit? And lastly, who are the prophets in your life? And are you listening to them? I don't know if that bodes very well for me based on what happens to prophets in this reading, but I'll take what I can get. If you want to throw me in a well, I'll go in a well, whatever the Lord wants. But, you know, who are the prophets in your life? Prophets often are people who uh, are willing to speak truth to you, and you may not always like it. Who are the people that challenge you spiritually? Who are the people who challenge you just like in life, (laughs) emotionally? You know, the people that get under your skin in the workplace or in your family, in a way, They can be prophets because they are speaking into your life opportunities to be virtuous, whether they realize it or not. I mean, they may not be moral people. They may not be Christ followers, but they, in a way, can be speaking opportunity to encounter God into your life. Who are those people? Are you responding to those prophets in your life? What have you been entrusted with? Are you bearing fruit with what you've been entrusted with? And whether you are or not, are you listening to the prophets who are seeking to proclaim truth or challenge you to bear more fruit in your life? Who are those people? Can you identify them? I think one of of the biggest tells is to ask yourself, who are the people that it's hardest for me to listen to or be around in my life? Those are probably the prophets in your life. That's a good starting pool to begin to assess. Those might be the prophets in your life. Now I promise I'm done. Those are the only other three things I wanted to say. So uh, questions, comments, things that stand out to you, I want to hear. Yes, great. I think uh, when you're saying, when you talk about the tenants, you're saying, there's the heir, let us come, let us kill him and get us an inheritance. I thought that meant they killed Jesus. They get rid of his idea of being the savior. Mm. So it saves their butt so they can keep maintaining the law. Pharisees can keep maintaining the law the way they have, and he's out of the picture. That's that's one thing. Yeah, one that's a great point. I want to ask you about us in the in, in sense 44 here, if you, if you have the cornerstone as part of a building, then what does it mean to say, he who falls on the stone will be dashed to pieces, while anyone who on whom it falls will scatter to dust? I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, you have a cornerstone, you have a building, so who's going to fall on the cornerstone? Sure. And so yeah. the cornerstone's not going to fall on anyone. So. Yes. I don't know if you have a take on that. Yeah, thank you for pointing out the verse that's not part of the gospel. Um, so <laughs> I, I love it. I know, you were going to do it anyway. I know, I know. Uh, yes, I'll answer that. But I want to reiterate Greg's first point, because I think it's also a, a good point, is that, you know, that, that point that I pointed out where, like, the, uh, the heir 
is threatened to be killed so they'll inherit it. It doesn't make any practical sense, but in a sense, it is prophetic. Like Greg was saying, it's prophetic. Jesus is saying, this is probably what the Pharisees think are going to happen to them. If they get rid of Jesus, they'll be able to continue to inherit everything that God has entrusted to them. And so that's a very good point, uh, a way we can interpret that. So I was just teasing you about 44. Um, so verse 44, even though it's not part of the gospel, it's in parentheses because it does appear in some early manuscripts. Um, and, and so anything in brackets is sometimes something that might be disputed in the manuscript evidence. Some early manuscripts have it, some early manuscripts don't, so it's usually included. None of those things ever uh, have any kind of theological or doctrinal effect. So if you're worried about like, do we know like everything? Yes, like don't worry. We have all the manuscripts we know. But what this means, this passage, if you have it in your Bibles, it's talking more about the cornerstone, saying the one who falls on this stone will be dashed to pieces and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. This is kind of very similar to a prophecy that is made in Daniel chapter 2. And in the prophet Daniel, Daniel has this vision. Um, he's relaying, sorry, a vision that the king has. And he's interpreting it and saying that, uh, King, in your vision you saw this statue, and it was made of many different metals. And part of it is this vision of a stone. And he says, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So he sees this statue that represents these different kingdoms that are going to come and rule, but the stone destroys it and then becomes this mountain. And later on he says, that is the meaning of the stone you saw hewn from the mountain without a hand being put to it, which broke in pieces the iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God has revealed to the king what shall be in his future. This is exactly what you dreamed, and its meaning is true. And that meaning is, in the lifetime of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed or delivered up to another people. Rather, it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and put an end to them, and it shall stand forever. And so in the same language of the prophecy of Daniel, what it means is that when you have this cornerstone, this kingdom of God that's going to be established, for people who are not following Jesus, the stone becomes a stumbling block. This is kind of what Jesus said where he, he came to say, I did not come to bring peace, but division. And what he means by that is everyone is going to have to look at me, Jesus, and make a decision. And either I'm going to be the cornerstone of their life or a stumbling block for them. And that stumbling block, will, it'll be an obstacle. It will lead themselves down a path of destruction. And just like a stone dashing someone to pieces, the same spiritual effect will happen for those who do not accept the cornerstone. So you're absolutely right. The practical application of this, no one would get dashed by a cornerstone. It's protected in the wall. It wouldn't be dangerous. But this is speaking symbolically of the role Jesus plays as a cornerstone of the church. That if people do not follow him and accept him as a cornerstone of the new church of the kingdom of God, then he immediately, his only other option in people's lives is he automatically becomes a stumbling block. Yeah, so that's a great point. Great question. <laughs> I was just teasing you. I always, I always like make jokes that like the scariest questions are when people are like, so this isn't from the reading, but you know, and then who knows what's going to happen. So, but I like, I like a challenge. So anyway, other, other questions. Yes, sir. So some of them think that, so why is there a signify, signification, one is killed, one stoned, one's beaten? It's a myriad of the ways that all of the prophets were treated. So some of the prophets were stoned, um, some of them were killed, some of them were beaten. You know, they, it's just a way to kind of plainly point out who exactly is this group Jesus is talking about. 
You know, so there are a lot of people, there's a lot of things that uh, incur the punishment of stoning in the Old Testament. So if he just said they've been stoned, the Jewish people could have been like, oh, well, maybe, maybe these people did something against the Torah. But if it also says they were killed, they were beaten, they were treated poorly, then it shows there's this kind of the sense of injustice. And what group historically have all those things happened to and have it been unjust to the prophets that they read and they proclaim as givers of truth in the synagogues? They read their scrolls. And so it would have been pretty clear once they understood the interpretation, who Jesus was talking about. No. Other questions? Other things stand out to you? Yes. Does stoning mean to death? Usually, yeah. Paul survived stoning. Yeah. I like to think he was pretty ripped. I don't know. You know, just, I mean, he survived a lot of things, like multiple shipwrecks. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Groundhog Day with Bill Murray, where he just tries to end his life a thousand different ways because his day won't end. I imagine Paul was kind of like Bill Murray in Groundhog Day. He's just like, just enduring, but it wasn't self-inflicted. It was just like, just enduring, endless, repeat punishment. Go into a city, preach, nobody listens, get persecuted, leave. Go into a city, try and get killed, you know, all of these things. So, and Paul was kind of like living on the edge in that regard as well, always kind of going where the danger was. But you can survive stoning. There is biblical precedent for it. Um, He's the only one I know of off the top of my head who survived it. Jesus was, they attempted to stone him many times, but he slipped among their midst. I don't think anyone was ever, ever successful at hurling a stone at him. Um, so Paul off the top of my head is the only one I know of that survived an actual attempt at stoning. There are pe- other people who came close. The woman who was caught in adultery, they were about to stone her. Jesus, as I said, multiple times, but um, actually enduring the act of stoning. Paul survived, so that means you probably you could, not a great chance, I don't think, not a high likelihood. Yes. Uh, what sort of symbolic value was assigned to wine for the for the Jews? Because yeah, there's wine present in the Bible. It comes up many times, and uh, as Matt said, they it's important in their Passover. So what? Yeah. What is the symbolism there. Yeah. I mean, wine is something that automatically symbolizes fruitfuncess. You're taking something and you are uh, like a gift you've been given and you are turning it into something better. You know, um at least I thought I don't know a lot of people who are stressed out and like oh, I really just want some grapes, you know, but like a glass of wine maybe, like a little more likely, you know what I mean? So um, part of it could be imagery of Eden because um, a, a lot of people it's disputed what the fruit was in Eden. It's not ever named the fruit that Adam and Eve partaken. Um, but when they are clothed, they are clothed with fig leaves. And so I happen to believe that it was a fig. Um, a lot of symbolism of the fig trees being cursed or fig tree fruitfulness. Also, the word in Greek for fig is souken, and the word for soul is psyken. And so there's a little word play there that anytime you see fig leading to fruitfulness, it symbolizes the fruitfulness of the soul. Anyway, you can make wine from figs. Um, you can make wine also from grapes, obviously. Um, and so these things, but also we're meant to have this kind of symbol of fruitfulness. Fruit, fruitfulness. The symbol of the vineyard is all present throughout history or throughout the Bible. Um, but then wine also has this ability to be corrupted. So it also kind of represents this uh, balance of self-control and virtue. That like, yes, we're meant to bear fruit, but we can also take the gifts we've been given and use them in disordered ways. And that can lead to things like abuse of alcohol and alcoholism and things like that. And so we have to temper the way in which we use the things that God has entrusted to us. We cannot use them selfishly or for selfish gain. How can we use them for the sake of others and keep their purpose properly ordered? 
properly ordered. Everything has a properly ordered purpose. And so I think wine is symbolic of that. Um, wine is very simple to make as well. It's accessible. Anyone had access to wine. And so it was something that anyone could understand. And then the last thing that comes to mind is both bread and wine, why I think they're very appropriately chosen for the materials for the Passover, not only because they're accessible, but because they both involve this, this action of crushing. Like you have to crush a grain of wheat. You have to crush a grape. And it's very symbolic of like suffering, the crushing that Jesus endured on the cross. And in order to get the desired product, whether it's flour or wine, it involves not just crushing one, but crushing several. It's kind of the symbolism of a community of wheat, a community of grapes coming together to lay down themselves sacrificially to produce something greater. And so uh, there's so much other symbolism probably in wine as well, but I think that's why it was used so prevalently because the symbolism of making it was very clear and also just how accessible it was and the biblical themes that we see show up time and time again. So, you know, could possibly have been the fruit in Eden, but we see how its use is corrupted in the story of Noah. Noah, you know, Noah delivers the people through the flood, but most people don't know the rest of the story, that he gets super drunk and then his sons see him in his nakedness and very weird, obscure, uh, weird sexual sins happen, and then he breaks his covenant with God as a result. And so we see this fruitfulness of God. Yeah, some people are like, what? That happens? Yes, read the book of Genesis. It's scandalous. Um, so, yeah, so that covenant breaks because the good that Noah had been entrusted was used in a disordered way. So um, wine can have that same representation. Yeah, great question. Other questions, thoughts, things that stood out to you personally? What's, why the hedge? Why the hedge? Yeah, that was the symbolism of the walls, as I mentioned. Yes, that any, any city that had walls, you couldn't be a city unless you had walls. You know, and that's something that we see when uh, the Hebrew people are taken into exile. Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed. Remember this? Then they are allowed to return to Israel, and they return in three different waves. And first, uh, and each wave has kind of a leader of the return. So wave number one is Zerubbabel. If you're looking for baby names in the future, Zerubbabel, great baby name. Uh, Zerubbabel, he helps build the temple. He builds the second temple. Okay, so now they have proper worship restored. The second wave is Ezra, the scribe. He restores the practice of the law. Okay, so you have worship and the law. Nehemiah is in the third wave. He rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem. And once those three things are back intact, proper worship, the law, so proper living, and then the wall to establish them as a city, as a nation once again, they're kind of, in a sense, restored. It wasn't the same grandeur of the previous temple. In fact, they say in the, the book of uh, in the book of Ezra or Nehemiah, I can't remember which one, that they wept at the sight of the new temple, some of the older people, because they remembered seeing or hearing how glorious the first temple had been, and this one paled in comparison. Um, but nonetheless, those things were necessary in order for the city to be considered a city again. And so that was a very practical thing that happened in the history of Israel. Uh, and so they would have they would have probably been able to see that symbolism as well. But at this time, the city had expanded far bigger than it had ever been before. Herod was, at this time, expanding the temple. He had added his palace to the temple area or near the temple area. Uh, and so there was an expansion of the temple from about, if I'm not mistaken, 20 BC to about 63 AD. So about 83 years, the temple was under construction. 
uh, finally finished in 63 AD, so well after the ministry of Jesus, only to be destroyed seven years later in the year 70. Um, so all of that kind of work and that fruitfulness um, was just for nothing because the real fruit, fruitfulness was in what Jesus came to establish. And ironically, the people who were in charge of overseeing the new temple construction were the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. They were the ones entrusted with that. It reminds me of um, Matthew 24, where Jesus predicts, Amen, I say to you, there will not be left here, uh, there will not be left here a stone upon another stone that will not be thrown down. Predicts the destruction of the temple, not only the temple of his own body, which will be destroyed, where he says, like, in three days, if you destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up, but also the practical destruction of the temple that will happen uh, a few decades later. Matt. Um, verse 37 um, says how the owner said, like, surely they will respect my son. Like, I, it doesn't seem like God thought that. Yeah, so, yeah, so... It, Again, the parable, so in the parable, yes, in a practical sense, a landowner, if they were to send their son, they would obviously think, surely they'll respect my son. I own the, the land. I'm sending my son, who is my heir. they got to respect him. But we don't want to interpret that too much to apply to God, because God knows everything that's going to happen. You know, he, he, and Jesus knew everything that was going to happen. He intentionally came to die for our sins. He was on a mission, and he fulfilled it exactly the way that he intended to. So we can't interpret it too much to think that like God was like, I'll come down there and they'll be nice to me, you know? And then all of a sudden he's like, whoa, 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 this is not how I thought this was going to go. You know, like he totally knew exactly how that would be so funny. I'm just thinking of an SNL bit like about that in my head right now. 90% of my life is just SNL bits that I write that you'll never see on TV that are all about Jesus. Um, so anyways, that's what, that's what is living in my head most of the time. Um, so he knew intent, uh, completely what he was going to do. So this, it's more to kind of describe the practicality of the situation in the parable than to apply directly to God. Yeah. <laughs> so, that'd be so fun. <laughs> this is not how I thought this was going to go. Let me go back up. I'll come back. Let's reset. Oh, man. Maybe in an alternate universe somewhere that happened. Anyways. Other questions? Other thoughts? Tell us a good Bible joke. A good Bible joke? Oh my gosh. I have no idea. Putting me on the spot. I don't know. The problem is I don't know any good ones. They're all dad jokes. You know? My favorite is the pickup line where I was reading the Bible the other day and I was in the book of Numbers and I realized I didn't have yours. You know? So, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's safe. That's safe, yeah. Yes, yeah. No, it did not work for me. No, I, don't, I didn't use that on my way. But my favorite Catholic pickup line is, um, uh, it's, a very, it's a very specific context that if you go to pick up, uh, there's usually a guy going to pick up a girl and she's like, oh, I'm not ready yet. Uh, you can say, oh, that's okay. I'm just going to pray the rosary because I'd wait decades for you. Oh. Yeah, that's a good one. There you go. Take that. Take that home, gentlemen. Let me know if it works. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you have a good Bible joke? Let's hear it. Is it long? Why did the apostles drive Hondas? I feel like I know the answer to this. What is it? 
Bible says they were in one, in one accord. Yes, yeah, they were all of one accord. Yeah, I knew I had heard it before. Okay, let's not get too derailed. Anyways, yeah, Daniel. I noticed that uh, unlike the servants, the tenants had to throw the son out of the vineyard. And I was wondering if that had any significance. Why they had to throw him out in order to kill him? Yeah, so I had said um, to make sure the vineyard wasn't unclean. Because if someone died in the vineyard, that would make it unclean. They wouldn't be able to use the crop. But it's also a prophecy of what happens to Jesus, right? He's taken out of the city to be killed up on Golgotha, outside of Jerusalem. Uh, and that would probably be pretty typical. You know, because death, blood was all considered unclean, anytime that happened, especially for the Jewish people, they wanted to be as separated from it as possible. And part of that was, was why the Jewish people could not, um, they typically were not responsible for any type of um, physical punishment, any type of like mortification, I guess you would call it, um, or torture or anything like that. And they were, at this time, uh, when, when, the Romans were, when the Romans were in rule over them, they were not allowed to exact capital punishment. That had been taken from them as a means of kind of controlling society and making sure, you know, no kind of rebellions or riots welled up if the Jewish hierarchy had condemned someone to death. So this was something that they weren't really, you know, privy to doing in the first place because it's unclean. They didn't have the legal influence to do it at this time. So, it, and they would have to go to appeal to Rome to do it anyway. And so in order not to, Rome was very concerned with like not, stirring up a riot or a rebellion. They wanted everything to be, you know, they had the, the Pax Romanum. You've heard the Roman peace. It was more like a very forcible peace, like everybody fall in line and everyone will be happy, which was not how it actually was experienced, but that was their version of peace. So their whole legal system was devoted to, let's just keep everyone in line. Let's keep everyone calm and just keep everyone in the status quo. So taking things out of the city helps that as well you know, to make sure people don't get too riled up. So, yeah. Yes. Um, so like pre-Rome, pre-Greece, pre-Babylon, post-Egypt, did the Israelite people have like a law enforcement thing? Or was it like this where the dad just says, oh, shoot, I'll just go kill him. And like, is that how it was done? So, yeah, the legal system, once they get into the promised land from Egypt, uh, first is a system of judges. So you have the judges like Deborah, Samson, they rule. And so if they would like take murder cases? Yeah, they would adjudicate things that weren't, uh, that weren't able to be adjudicated by the local elder. So Moses kind of had this establishment of a system in, in the desert where he, he elected 70 elders and he started to delegate. And, you know, people had a certain number of people under them to adjudicate special cases. So everyone wasn't coming to Moses 24-7 with these different family disputes or disputes in the new laws. They were trying to learn it. And so once they got into the promised land and Joshua took over, that same legal system kind of was, was predicated on all of them. Each tribe had their kind of tribal elders that would adjudicate. They'd bring things to whoever was in charge. That person in charge was a judge. And we had a series of about 12 or 13 judges. And then that led to the kings, Saul, David, Solomon. And then from that point forward, we had kings. Even when the kingdom was split north and south, there was a king in the north or a king in the south. Those were the people they would go to for those different disputes. So it was basically like the Roman Empire, except the Hebrews were the empire. And they were trying to keep the status quo, trying to adjudicate these different things. Obviously, it was one people, so it was different circumstances, but the legal system was still intact in some way. So they were enforcing the law of the Torah as long as the Torah was being adhered to. Because there are many times where they just did away with the law and started, you know, worshiping pagan idols, and then who knows what was happening. So, yeah. And so, last question. Yeah. Would the, the father in this, would he be like the elder? And that's why he's 
because it seems to assume that he has the power to do this. Justly. Yes. Yeah. Well, so in this parable, the father is God. Right. But yes. I guess in the in the just the story. Yeah. Not an allegory. Well, in the story, oh, I see. Like according to according to Hebrew law, it seems would, like the father is justified in killing the guys who killed his son. Yes. Yeah. Because in in the Torah, as well as predating that, like the Code of Hammurabi, which is the oldest, I think, written law that we have. We get the saying, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, a life for a life, you know. So that was considered, that's even in uh, the Torah, but it's contextualized in the Torah um, for certain situations. So I think in this situation, the death of a son, an heir, would, would have uh, allowed for that as a punishment under, Hebrew, under Torah law. Yeah. I understand the question now. Sorry, that was a very long answer. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, in the closing minutes, um, any f one final question, comment? I just want to give anyone a chance. No burning questions. I feel like there's one. Sometimes I just feel it tingling in the air. Who has it? Who has it? Nobody? Okay. Yes? So in another reading. <laughs> so in another reading. Awesome. So as you reflect on this passage this week, especially as you hear it proclaimed along with all the other readings this coming Sunday, reflect on those questions. Reflect on those questions. What has been entrusted to you? Are you bearing fruit in your life? And who are the prophets in your life? And how can you better respond and listen to them? Even when they challenge you, even when it's hard to hear the truth that they're telling you. And even if they don't look like a typical prophet, how are they challenging you to grow in virtue? Okay, Because even the worst people in our lives morally are giving us opportunities to grow in virtue, to grow in patience, to grow in the ability to, sh to, to spread the truth, to share the truth with them. And so to take those things charitably and not to respond instead with judgment or jumping to conclusions or criticism, but really reflecting on that question, those questions. What have you been entrusted with? Are you bearing fruit? Who are the prophets in your life? Challenging you to continue to bear that fruit and bear even more. Let's pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this word. Thank you for all of the ways that it challenges us and warns us against being entitled in our roles in the church, in our faith. Let us never rest on our laurels and think that we are content with the way things are in our spiritual lives. You are always calling us, calling us to deeper relationship with you, to keep on going further up and further in in our relationship with you, Lord, in our pursuit of heaven. And so we pray, God, that you would bless us each in the ways we most need it. Bless us in the ways that we are desiring to grow in virtue and help us to see all that you have given us, all the blessings you pour out, and to use them not for ourselves, but for the good of others. To ask, what are the spiritual charisms that I have? How can I serve the church in a greater way? How can I radically love my neighbor how can I sacrifice for those you've placed in my life? How can I think less of myself and more of others? And Lord, we pray that you will help us to see if we're bearing fruit, challenge us if we are not, and to pay attention to the voices of those prophets in our lives, to not reject them out of a fear of insecurity or criticism, but to thank you for even the people that press our buttons and challenge us because in some way you are speaking. So help us to be listening. Help us to be good stewards, good tenants of the great vineyard you have given us.
We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.